Lord, we thank you again for your word. We pray that, um, Lord, through this thing called preaching, through the voice of a mere man, Lord, we, we ask in your grace that you would conduct that divine dialogue in our souls, showing us your wisdom. And Jesus, that you are, as we sang earlier, Lord, that you are wise, that you are the embodiment of wisdom, and we can trust you to be followers of you um, as your children. So, Lord, would you, would you convict us this morning, encourage us, and show us yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, before we unpack this text, I think um, you guys have... Um, Pastor Joel's been taking you through the Gospel of John, correct? Is that... Yep. Okay. So, um, it's sort of parachute dropping into Ephesians... It would probably be appropriate just to take a quick little thumbnail sketch. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and he sent it to uh, a number of churches that lived in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus um, was originally a Greek colony, but the time that he is writing this, it's a Roman province of Asia. And this was a really strategic city that was located near the entrance of a seaport or a harbor, and if you can sort of picture this, um, people would come from all the known world to do business and trading there. And it was a metropolitan city, busy city, that became kind of a melting pot of different languages, nationalities, ethnicities, probably not too different than Sydney in a way, I suppose. Um, yet, uh, very, very... Uh, wicked in that um, if, you, if, if you were a Christian there, uh, and, and we know this, if, if you have a chance to read Acts chapter 19, you'll, you'll hear about or read about Paul's uh, journey there, and that people started a riot because others weren't worshiping a pagan goddess named Diana anymore. And so it was a very wicked city that had a high tolerance of idolatry and a low one of Christianity. And so Paul visits there and after spending about three years in Ephesus and preaching the gospel and planting churches, um, he's later in prison and he writes a letter. And he, in the first three chapters of this letter, of this book, um, but what I say, I say letter because sometimes we, we forget that this is a real letter written to real people. And, and Paul's celebrating this fact, right? He's celebrating that God in the very first... It's, it's just an amazing uh, letter because Paul uh, doesn't... And it, he doesn't like stop. He's so excited he doesn't stop to put commas or periods essentially. He just like keeps going from chapter 1, verse 1. He just sort of just keeps kind of like this really excited guy that just... Oh! And he's talking about, praise God and all these spiritual blessings in Christ because he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he's very excited about that. And praise God, rightly so, right? That if you're in Christ, and that's us, friend, that's, that's you if you're in Christ, you did not choose God. Your, your heart, just like mine, was cold and dead. And, and, and Paul talks about that in chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And, and God quickens us, makes us alive together in Christ and is by grace we have been saved through faith this is not our own and Paul's he's just excited he's talking about that that's, that's chapter 1, 2 and 3 he's, he's laying the, the indicative 
right? This is, this is a reality. And then in 4, 5, and 6, he's now sort of saying, because of everything Christ has done, and this is the indicative, this is true, now walk in this way, the imperative, Right, so so chapters. If you're ever sitting around, you know, Joel hangs out with a bunch of really smart guys, and if you ever want to impress all of Joel's friends, you could say, "Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it. Chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians is kind of like an orthodoxy, and then chapters four, five, and six is kind of like an orthopraxy." And they might all scratch their chins and go, "Yeah, yeah, that's really good." And you can say, "That's right, that's right." Um, so that's sort of how the the book is is set up. And that's really where we're led today in, in, in chapter 5, in Ephesians 5.15. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It says here in, in 5.15, be very careful then how, how you live, right? Not, not, as, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, the antithesis of Wisdom is foolishness, right? And I grew up in the 80s. I'm 35 years old. And I used to watch this television show and Mr. T was on it. I don't know if you know who Mr. T is. And he had this line and he always used to say, I pity the fool, right? And um, that's just, I, I, my, see, Joel's dad read like the Puritans to him and all this stuff. My dad was just like, just go watch Mr. T, you know? Um, and so anyway, but um, that's sort of how my weird imagination works when I, when I, when I read this. But the word fool there, um, when, we, when we hear that, when we think, maybe you don't think Mr. T, but um, whatever it might be, when, when we hear fool, we typically think of someone who is unintelligent, Right? Or someone who acts irresponsibly. Um, but, you know, Scripture defines a fool as a person who says in his heart, there is no God. So, irregardless, now, 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 now here's the deal, right? Um, we're not too far from uni and, and a bunch of really good schools. There's people, let's, let's truth be told, there's some very, very smart people there. Very, very smart. It's not saying that they're unintelligent. But the people that say in their heart, and certainly they're, they're there at uni. There's no God. Or if there's a God, he's unknowable. Right? Some agnosticism and all those things. Well, well that, um, okay. That's not really our, our judgment upon them as much as the God himself says actually they are foolish. The Bible describes opposite of that. The, the Bible describes a wise person. And this was read earlier in Proverbs 1. Right? It says the fear, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise instruction and knowledge. And if you've ever read this wonderful letter here in Ephesians, we, as I was just talking about in Ephesians 2, Paul says, right? He talks about all of us. He says, as for you, you were, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so because we are born separated from God, our hearts are naturally against Him, if we're, if we're, out, if we're outside of Christ. So we're born foolish, as it were. And the only way to cease being a fool and become wise 
is in salvation. Titus 3 tells us, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. See, the only way we can walk in wisdom is by God first coming to us in grace and regenerating our hearts. And if He has, then according to this text, we can redeem the time. And we can know His will. And those are sort of the two points that I want to camp out on. Redeeming the time and knowing God's will. But let's look again at our text. Ephesians 5. 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Now notice there what he says in 5.15. He says, look carefully or be careful. Right? He's he's grabbing our attention. He says, listen. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You know, I used to live in Hawaii and I was there as a pastor for 10 years. I know. It was, it was, it was rough, right? And these big Hawaiian guys, when they'd want to get your attention, they'd say this. Hey, brah, you know what, brah? And, and it's like, you better listen because it was like this massive guy that's like, you know, this huge rugby player guy, and when they say, hey, you know what? It's like, what? You know, you sort of listen carefully, right? I'm not sure what they say in Australia to get your attention, um, but that's what Paul Sonny says, listen, look, look carefully. And they says, no, sir, and, and I know that your translation says this, right? He says, making the most of every opportunity, right? This has the idea of, of redeeming the time or buying up the time, kind of like shopping for a bargain, See, when Paul says to redeem the, the time, he, he's talking about an allocated or, or fixed season. Basically, having, having sovereignly bounded our lives with eternity, God knows both the beginning and the end of our times on earth. So as Christians, we should pray that God would help us to maximize our time, maximize the opportunity for His glory to walk in wisdom. You know... Jonathan Edwards, when he was only 19 years old, he wanted to walk in wisdom, and so he made some resolutions, decisions that would would guide the rest of his life, and in his fourth resolution, he said this, he said, I resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. So this man was extremely wise, and you know God used him in incredible ways, and we're still blessed by his writings. Now, that's great and all. That's great for Edwards, and he's sort of a genius. But what about the rest of us? What about us that were here, and, um, you know, maybe it's been a long week for you? I, I don't know. 
I don't, I, I don't know you guys. I'm just getting to know some of you. But how do, we, how do we walk in wisdom? How do we make the most of every opportunity, as it were? Well, husbands, if I can just talk to you for a moment. You know, some of you might commute to work or you drive your car. Um, there you ha- or you're sitting to get a coffee or whatever. Um, we can take that time to be praying for our families, to be praying for our non-Christian friends and siblings. Um, wives, you know, and the moms that are in here, um, my wife, she's very busy, but we can be looking for opportunities and praying that, or not we, you guys, you, you can be looking for opportunities and praying that, that God would continue to, by His grace, by His Spirit, allow you to be a good helpmate to your husband as he leads the family. Of course he's not going to lead perfectly. But, but you, can, you can pray that you would be a, a, a proper helpmate to him as God has ordained him to be the leader in that home. Um, you know, I, I've been commuting around Sydney a bunch and I've had a lot of opportunity to share the gospel with people. Some of you might commute, you know, train, bus, whatever it might be. There's opportunities everywhere, isn't there? You could be sitting next to someone on, on a bus and they may be the only Christian that you're going to interact with for a long, long time. And I know the gospel is preached in this church. I know it's woven through the fabric of your singing and everything that you do. I know that you know the gospel. And you're in Christ. The only hope that that person has that's sitting next to you on the bus, that person might be suicidal for all you know. I mean, we don't know. Or, or they're just dead in their trespasses and sins. Or they're heading to uni. I mean, who, know, who knows? Right? Or, 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 your, or your family members. Think of all the opportunities that we can have. I mean, we truly believe in the providence of God, right? And it's, it's you know, I don't want to sound too you know, superstitious or Pentecostal or anything, but I mean, you're sitting next to that person. It's not like God's kind of going, oh, what? I just, I, he's not looking down from heaven going, I didn't know you were going to sit next to that person on the bus. I mean, that person, yeah, I, I didn't, I, well, well, I hope he, I hope he shares. I hope something happens there. I mean, that's just what, that's a, that's not the God that we serve. And, and God knows and, and, and for whatever reason, you're next to that person and that person needs to hear the gospel. Needs to hear about the hope they can have in Christ and the forgiveness they can have and that God has created them and they'll be judged on the last day if they don't repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness of sins. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. It's not like I shared, you know, with every single person I was sitting on the bus with. But I, used to, but I sure would try to engage as best I can and pray for that person. And... Um, yeah, and so those are some of the ways that we can, we can sort of make the, the, again, as your translation, I think, says there, make the most of every opportunity or making the best use of the time. Well, how else can we do it? How else can we do it? Well, a real practical level is by trusting in the sovereign providence of God. By trusting in the sovereign providence of God. Allow me to quote a fragment of the 1689 Confession. I've been told that I need to quote that if I want to come back and preach here, so I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm kidding. No one said that to me. Um, listen to this. God, 
the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. Now we hear that, right? Our hearts are warmed. Yes, that's rich. That's good. Well, that's good, but sometimes Christians have a propensity to believe that God only involves himself with the major events of the universe, but is not concerned about the small and the trivial. We start to think that the Lord is far too busy and majestic to get involved with minor details. Now listen, it's essential to understand that God is in control of every detail, even the bothersome and annoying situations that we face. When your car doesn't start, or you missed the bus. Again, sometimes missing the bus might be our fault. But when your car doesn't start, or something odd happens, or just your, your daily task, or your day is not working out the way it, it should, God's in control. He governs all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. And the reality is that the circumstances are not often what they appear. The Lord might allow for an evangelistic conversation to transpire between you and the tow truck driver or your mechanic. Who knows? Some things they're not, they're, sometimes they're not what they appear. God may choose to use your calm response in this situation to ignite pun intended, to ignite a discussion with the mechanic about how you can experience joy in the midst of an obviously irritating situation to make the best use of the time. Or how about when you're in the doctor's office and it takes an extra hour? Well, you can take that extra hour and if you have the Bible on your phone, you can look at that. Try to engage with someone next to you in evangelism. Pray for your, again, some of the things that we've already highlighted. See, when inconvenient circumstances strike, and they will this week, will they not? Something inevitably will happen. Especially if you're like my wife. She's not here, so I can, I can, I can throw her under the bus a little bit. No, I shouldn't do that. She's way godlier than me. But um, plenty of things, and I know as mothers here, plenty of things happen, right? You try to get the kids out the door, and just, you know, life happens. And it's inconvenient. And things happen. But as Christians, we should pray that God will allow us to redeem the time while simultaneously trusting in His control to work for the good, the spread of the gospel, and the glory of His name. Make, friends, brother, sister, may God help us to do that, to make the best use of the time. As that, that, that's one way that we walk in wisdom. So walking in wisdom, by God's grace, <clears throat> means we redeem the time because... Because, beyond some of the little inconveniences and things like I just mentioned, well, because the days are evil. Those aren't my words. Look at, look at your Bible. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What does it mean exactly, the days are evil? Well, we know that the days are evil because God gives Satan 
enough leash, as it were, so that he can be called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, right? Who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Second, the days are evil because God does not fully restrain the pride and rebellion and river of wickedness that flows from the human heart. And third, the days are evil because of all the natural disasters and calamities that crash down on both the good and the bad. And yet God is still sovereign over all of those things. And as he writes, Paul's not naive. He's, he's not some armchair critic sitting in an air-conditioned office that never engages with the world. He knows the days are evil because he struggled with his own sin. He felt the sins of others when he was beaten with rods when he was imprisoned. And so he says, in light of this, because the days are evil, because the danger is so great, because the wickedness is so appalling, and because, because constant watchfulness and unwavering zeal for Christ so necessary, he says, don't be foolish, but... Understand what the will of the Lord is. You see that there? Ephesians 5. Therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And how do we know what the will of the Lord is? It's a big topic for some people. They kind of get stressed out about that. But God's word is God's will is revealed in his word, right? I mean, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's will is that you be saved. God's will is that you be spirit-filled. Because you notice there in verse 18, he just doesn't kind of leave you hanging. Right there in Ephesians 5.17, he says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's an imperative. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So God's will is that we be saved. God's will is that we be Spirit-filled. God's will is that we be sanctified. That we grow and and what's called progressive sanctification. Yes, we have our positional sanctification, but we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. God's will is to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His footsteps. So, spirit-filled people, yes, they're saved. They're being sanctified. And they're suffering. Notice there in Ephesians 5.18 again. Not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. 
but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He keeps going here. There's no, he, and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see, only after we understand what pleases God can we live out His will in our lives. And our main understanding of His will comes from a good knowledge of His Word. I love how a guy named John Stott put it. He says, The will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the Word of God. I found that to be pretty helpful, kind of rhymish. The will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the Word of God. So what does walking in wisdom look like? It has the idea of redeeming the time. And it means, second, that we find God's will in God's Word. You know, this idea of walking in wisdom is not a new concept. We just read Proverbs this morning that talked about that. It's a prominent theme discussed in the Old Testament. In fact, you'll even see this theme of wisdom in Greco-Roman literature. And you'll see it in ancient Jewish writings. The wisdom of so-and-so, the wisdom of this. Those aren't inspired, but you see them. In fact, during Jesus' ministry, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, he preached about the wise and the foolish men, right? One built his house on the sand. The other built his house upon the rock. And in a few chapters later, Jesus not only teaches what true wisdom is, but he claims, hey, someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. He walked in wisdom like no one on this earth has. You see, he made the best use of the time on earth by living a sinless life. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And where we failed, he succeeded and obeyed perfectly on our behalf. You know, the great news, friends, is yes, God has called us to walk in wisdom, but Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. Christ is perfect. He knew His Father's will and submitted to it, even when it meant going to the cross. And while He was on the cross, He was sinless, spotless, no sin whatsoever. And if you're in Christ, if you are a believer this morning, when Jesus, yeah, when Jesus was on the cross, He was without sin. But God treated Him as if He was a sinner, as it were. And if you're in Christ, friend, He, he executed Jesus as if He lived your life so that He could treat you as if you lived His. Our Lord made the best use of the time he has perfectly obeyed the Father's will. And now as His children, He calls us to imitate Him. And may the Lord help us to do so for His glory and for His name, namesake. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word that was preached this morning. And Lord, it's easy to hear about these things and to give mental assent to these ideas. But Lord, we need your spirit to help us. Help us, Father, to make the best use of the time to continue to know your will. Lord, to be the type of people that are filled with your spirit, that are growing in sanctification, that are suffering well. Lord, we can never do that on our own. So we ask that you would hold us fast and continue to do that for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.